Well, we left off yesterday. We were talking a little bit about how we got to where we are today. And my attempt yesterday was to try to review where we were the last time that I was here in Phoenix. To try to give us a place that's a jumping off point to where you could really put in context all of the other uh, presentations that you're going to be hearing. Because I think you're pretty much hearing the same theme, correct? That this has a source. And I would say, it, I just praise God that um, when I think about the fact of the past eight years or so, of trying to explain to people why, first of all, why this was going to happen, why it is happening, and now what we need to do about it. Well, that's been difficult. And as you know, with so many folks, really what gets in our way is a lot of times this cognitive dissonance. You know, we just can't believe that something like this would be happening and the people that, look, we understand the structures of hierarchy that we have. We understand uh, really, in terms of whatever our career paths are, the ways in which we can, quote, climb the ladder, the way in which we participate with others that are of like mind to be able to be successful in life, because that's our thing. We're, we have a meritocratic culture, and in many ways, you have a meritocratic church as well that is basically prescribed upon, upon a biblical framework, that those that know more, those that, that, of course, as well, that the fruit of the Spirit can be seen through their actions, those that have the knowledge and use that knowledge wisely, those that that really are able to take care of their households well, etc. Those are the ones that advance in leadership. Those are the ones that are not blown about by every wind of doctrine or the ones that should be teaching. But somehow, in the last 30 years or so, especially the last 15 to 20 years, a lot of that stuff's been kind of pushed aside. And you got to ask, well, why has that been pushed aside? What's been happening what is the issue? What is the reason why all of these things are changing within our church structure? You know, well, I'm referring mainly, I mean, my goodness, if you take a look at like the Episcopalian church or the Anglican church, a lot of the more progressive uh, Methodist and Presbyterian denominations, oh, this changed a long time ago. You know, there, there is, if, if you didn't, you know, walk into an average, uh, you know, let's say, more mainline Episcopalian, mainline Methodist, mainline Presbyterian church, and not see a transgendered pastor, it's almost like, oh, oh good, this is unusual. Wow, there's an actual male up there preaching, you know? And he's married. So you would have to say, well, why is this now happening, and why were we starting to trend this way in the Southern Baptist Convention and the Presbyterian Church in America uh, with other evangelical denominations, and not just those that we normally think of as Reformed Evangelical, but also within the Pentecostal churches and the Charismatic churches at the same time. So you have to wonder, what's going on? Well, at the same time, I think there's some of you, how many of you in our current audience that we have are former Catholics? Okay, so there's a few of you. I'm a former Catholic myself. One of the things that I saw where I'm being told that my authority needs to be the church, one of the things that I saw, by the way, let's all do this. Let's turn off our phones or go ahead and put our volume all the way down. Always a safe thing. 
One of the things that I saw as a young Roman Catholic, especially when I went to university many years ago and started going to a very a, a church, a, a parish that was very close uh, to where the center of the university was, is, boy, it was a whole lot different than the parish near my house. Man. And they were saying some things and doing some things and having some really strange masses uh, that were in some ways really pushing the edge for me. And I guess you could say that the priests there were much more progressive and radical. They were saying things that were almost somewhat revolutionary. So here at 19 years old, 20 years old, I'm hearing things that didn't make any sense, and as a matter of fact, very much disagreed with some of the political views that I had started to adopt at the time. I'd started to become rather conservative. So the lenses that I was looking through then were those that would see both a faith or spiritual direction that would conform as well with an understanding of what we should be conserving. Because in many ways, if you have a faith or a church that is not trying to conserve what happened in the generation before it and the generation before it, as a matter of fact, we can go way back a few thousand years. And if it's not conforming to the Word of God, then maybe that's a faith that's going in the wrong direction. So as a Roman Catholic who was very much a witness to by my friends that were Southern Baptists and Baptists and, you know, uh, more on the fundamentalist Baptist side and the Presbyterian side that always would challenge me with things. And I had a little more respect for some of my conservative Presbyterian friends because at least we didn't make boogeymen out of each other's um, perspectives or of our faith traditions. So we had more discussions there, which would eventually lead me, by the way, to start listening to a man by the name of Dr. R.C. Sproul. But what I saw at the time was that things were really being radicalized in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, they were saying things all of a sudden about not just about what we were to do in, in, in accordance to following the law of God in terms of doing what we needed to of taking sacraments within the church, within our own personal behaviors and so forth, making sure that we were doing what the church had required for us for our salvation, which is a whole other game. That's a whole Pandora's box that I can't really open up now. But if, you're, if your gospel is do real good, uh, be real good, and maybe you'll spend less time in purgatory, that's no gospel. Okay? Which makes it really odd that we have a lot of folks, even from this area, in the Phoenix area, that are Baptist pastors that are taking flights to Rome to meet with different folks that are at the Vatican to start talking about how we can start working together and all. I'm sorry, what gospel is that? Now, I'm all for co-belligerency if we're working together, you know, in our districts and so forth, and we're doing what we can politically and trying to make sure that we're doing But when it comes to the actual faith itself, now I will fight for those that are more conservative Catholics, and I will help them to be able to root the cancer out. But one thing I will not do is say, oh, well, we share the same gospel. Well, that's not true. And we should argue about that. And that's great. 
Because I'm going to tell you, I don't believe what you're saying is true. And you can say to me, oh yeah, well I believe that you're a prot, you're a, you're a book worshiping, yeah, sure, and I am, and let me t- explain to you why. Well, what's your proof for that? Well, I think you're this, and you know, really what you believe, well, that's the way we used to do things, right? One of the reputations that I had for many years was that I was somebody who was moderating debates between Protestants and Catholics and, and evangelicals and Christians and Muslims. Uh, I was moderating debates between Pado-Baptists and Credo-Baptists, kind of what I was known for. But it's hard to have those debates anymore because we're being balkanized and fractured. But I remember back in the Catholic Church, about 30 years ago, man, things were getting radical. Things were getting progressive. Now, in many parishes that were in older areas and so forth, they kept, not to the Latin Mass, not pre-Vatican II, but they were more conservative in the way that they delivered their message. But boy, you get on a college campus, whoo, man, I tell you, it was no holds barred. And you were likely to hear things that were very much akin to liberation theology. So, if that was happening in the Catholic Church before it started happening in Protestant evangelical circles, well, why is that? What was it that sparked this within Roman Catholic circles? Well, let's remember this from yesterday. We're talking about the dialectic, correct? Problem, reaction, solution. You create the problem first. If you're the one who's trying to manage the dialectic, the dialectic is not something that happens on its own organically. It's something that you manage. So you create the problem, then you create or encourage the reaction. So you either create the the reaction or you create the environment from which you get the reaction from those that you're trying to prod to do something happens. Right? You remember like some things that maybe happened in D.C. in January of 2021, right? Let's go into the, right? The same sort of thing. You want to encourage a response that you want that then allows you to come to or to manifest your predetermined solution. So your predetermined solution is realized. So in many ways, it's that, again, that process of alchemy. It's that process, again, of Pygmalionism, where you take something that is something else materially and you completely make it something else, or at least say that it is. Remember, alchemy was the process of taking two unrelated substances and coming up with gold. That's what alchemy was. But the gold was not really gold. It just looks like gold. Now, you said, oh, but Mike, if they tested it, but what if you're actually in control of the test? And you're the one that's making the test. Well, then you can make the gold what you say gold is, right? Now you're understanding the dialectic. And you start to think about how that works. And now I see some of your minds, and I see the wheels turning, saying, boy, I could see that in a lot of things that are happening around me today. Correct. Because as I tried to explain many times, and as I started talking to Dr. Lindsay many years ago, And he was one that would listen and then take what I would say and go, 
let me get back to you on that. That sounds like the right track. And I said, you know, it's a strange kind of combination of really hermeticism and Gnosticism that we're seeing. I just can't quite get it together yet. Well, James has put it together, and he sees it very clearly. So, let's go back in time a little bit. Let me introduce you once again. Again, this happened very quickly at our last time in Phoenix, so I want to review it again and then take you to where we were going to go. Domhelder Kamara. He was ordained a priest in 1931 with direct authorization of the Holy See. The Holy See, and he was very young at the time. I mean, extremely young, but brilliant young man. And Camara was named Auxiliary Bishop of Rio de Janeiro by Pope Pius XII on March 3rd of 1952. Dom Camara. Now, during his first years as a priest, he was a supporter of the fascist socialist organization, Integralismo. I don't want you to forget that word. If you want to take a picture, please do. Integralismo. And I want you to go back and check anything that I'm saying. Google it, research it, duck, duck, go it, brave search, which I would recommend. Uh, <laughs> do anything like that, please look into what I am saying. Follow the trail. So, Integralismo. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? which while being fascist and corporatist, held opposition between materialism, understood by him as the normal operation of natural laws guided by blind necessity, and spiritualism, the belief in God, in the immortality of the soul, and in the condi condition conditioning of individual existence to superior eternal goals. So, Understand that you're talking about something that was, yes, a marriage between the state and the corporate world. We would call that, in our current vernacular, a public-private partnership, right? But what Integralismo did, and with all Integralism, you can go back to France, actually, in the 19th century and see this as well, Integralismo and Integralism says, you know what, you have that public-private partnership, but you know to really make this work, a whole-of-society process would be to include as well religion, faith, because you can't operate with a two-legged stool. You need a third leg of the stool to have it hold something up. So during his tenure, Kamara was informally called the Bishop of the Slums for his clear position on the side of the urban poor. Now, it might seem strange to you for a second that you're talking about someone who's talking about a corporate state partnership, fascism, with religion in the mix. Well, how could that be something for the poor? Well, if you want to use the poor, if you want to leverage the poor, especially in a country like Brazil, where the majority of people are poor. And if you want to take political action, that's what you do. With other clerics, he encouraged peasants to free themselves from their conventional fatalistic outlook by studying the Gospels in small groups and proposing the search for social change from their reading. So he's 
coming to the poor, to the favelas. He's coming to them and he's saying, you need to get rid of this idea that you're always going to be poor. But instead of encouraging private enterprise or how to start your own business or further education so you can better yourself and prepare yourself to really make a wage yourself and lift yourself out of poverty, he instead says, you know, we need to start looking for a way to create social change within government. Do you see the difference? He was active in the formation of the Brazilian Bishops' Conference in 1952 and served at, as its first general secretary until 1964. Now, he attended all four sessions of Vatican II. Now, remember what Vatican II was. Vatican II was what the Pope at the time said was a way to open up the windows and blow the dust out. So what we're going to do is we're going to create change within the Catholic Church, true big change. We're going to get rid of things like the Latin Mass. We'll start preaching the Mass in the vernacular. We're going to start to do things a bit differently, a little bit more commonly like what would relate to each one of the cultures or the socioeconomic situation in each one of the countries where we have our parishes. Kind of a way in which you could have a, I don't know, a pedagogy of the oppressed, maybe. So, Camara was one of the primary organizers of something that was called the Pact of the Catacombs. Now, the Pact of the Catacombs was done in the actual catacombs. So, if you think about, how many of you have been to Rome before? Have you been to the catacombs? And so what you do is you go underneath the ground, it's just outside of, of Rome, and you go down, I mean, it's a little ways to get down there, and you have all these caves that were the burial places for folks many, many, many centuries ago. And Christians, back during the, the, the years of persecution in the first three or four centuries, would use that as a way in which they could still practice their faith, still meet together. They met around the dead so they wouldn't be persecuted, especially during the years of the Diocletian persecution. So, they met in the catacombs. And this is some of the things that were said within their pact. Said, conscious of the, by the way, this is in the 1960s, just before Vatican II, conscious of the demands of justice and charity and their mutual relationship, we will seek to transform essential activities into social works based on justice and charity, which take into account all that this requires as a humble service of the competent public organs. So they want to transform essential activities into social works based on justice, and whatever your definition of justice is now, and charity. Transformational process already. Something that all of these priests and bishops and even a few cardinals were coming down to make this pact. This is what they would get together to do. Next, it says this. We will do our utmost so that those responsible for our government and for our public services make 
and put into practice laws, structures, and social institutions required by justice and charity, equality, and the harmonic and holistic development of all men and women. And by this means, bring about the advent of another social order worthy of the sons and daughters of mankind and of God. They were trying to bring about the advent of another social order. And in this transformative time overall of the Roman Catholic Church, with literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of members who faithfully went to their parishes, many times not just every weekend, but in many times every day. Because those that were very faithful Catholics went and received the sacrament daily. It wasn't like what we do currently in evangelicalism where we show up, oh, I go to the Saturday night church service, or I like going to the 11.30. No, I like the 10 o'clock because I can get out and football starts, you know. I mean, we're over here on the West Coast side of things, you know, so we want to make sure we get the full game. No, this was a dedication because a lot of these people did not even have mass media in the early 60s by that time. That was more of a Western thing. So your social activities were actually based upon what you did in church. You didn't have this to distract you all the time. So understand, if you started to make some fundamental changes within the church itself, and at the same time, think about what was going on in the 1960s. Herbert Marcuse writes, One Dimensional Man, that as well you have all these uprisings of the hippie movement and so forth. You have the civil rights movement in Italy and in France, you basically have the seeds of revolution. How many of you remember Chaz, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, during the 2020s, where they got into Seattle and said, okay, these five blocks are ours, it's our autonomous zone, we are declaring this our new nation, right? You understand that they were doing that in France in the 1960s. And as well, in Italy. So, while these things were happening, and they were attempting to create a new social order, the church was doing the same thing. It was part of the culture. You had hippie culture. It was part of the films that you saw. It was part of the, the TVs that you saw as well. Our music, our movies, our television were all moving in the same direction. Now, if you thought that that was something then, Think about what it is now. It's all-encompassing. It never stops. I was thinking about it when we arrived into Phoenix the other day. We arrived into Phoenix. And as we got off the plane, first of all, in the plane, you know, you have to watch your ads to be able to get your Wi-Fi. And then you're on the Wi-Fi, so you're not having time to yourself. You're usually doing something, and you have to deal with all the news that's coming in and the push notifications. You get off the plane. As I'm getting onto the escalator to go down to the luggage area in Phoenix, right, 
I, I counted three big giant 4K ad screens playing as I went down. Of course, one for what some talking stiff casino or something like that. I forget what it was, and something else for ASU and how we're the most progressive anywhere, and you know, something like that on the way down. And you get down into your luggage area, and then you have more ads everywhere. But each one of them is pushing a new idea. And I did walk past, just like we have in every single airport, from Rome to Heathrow to JFK to Atlanta Airport, we walked past the 17 sustainability goals of the United Nations. Matter of fact, I saw the 17 sustainability goals on the side of a cruise ship in the port of Civitavecchia in Italy about two months ago. Big painted on the side of the hull. Sustainability. A new religion. Because all of society, a whole of society project is going on to bring about the advent of another social order. That's what the Pact of the Catacombs was. Now, let's go back to Dom Helder Camara. So, Dom Helder Camara eventually became a very high-ranking bishop. And Kamara was known as the Red Bishop due to his condemnation of the anti-communist stance of the United States and his praise of Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, they would say today, during the Cultural Revolution. He was praising the Cultural Revolution of China, which claimed millions of lives. Kamara identified himself as a socialist and not as a Marxist. That was his Mott position as opposed to the Bailey position of a Marxist, although he was. And while disagreeing with Marxism, he said, he had Marxist sympathies. Mott Bailey. He stated, quote, my socialism is special. It's a special kind of special, special kind of socialism, not like that, you know, kind of just raw type. Because, of course, I'm a man of God. I wear a collar, so it's a very different thing. It's safe if you practice Marxism through me, because I'm here to be your pastor. I'm here to guide you on earth in this journey and into the next. Right? My socialism is special. It's a socialism that respects the human person and goes back to the Gospels. My socialism, it is justice. End quote. He said concerning Karl Marx, that while he disagreed with his conclusions, he agreed with his analysis of the capitalist society. So, oh, I'm not, you know, I disagree with a lot of conclusions of Marx, but yeah, capitalism, that's a bad thing. We got to get rid of that. You know who else was, a, was mentored by Dumhelder Kamara? Someone by the name of Pope Francis. So Dom Helder Camaro had a tremendous amount of influence on Jorge Mario Bergoglio, Pope Francis, and others, by the way. Dom Helder Camaro, if I, if I remember me last time what I was explaining, is that Dom Helder Camaro was from Recife, Brazil. That's where he was the auxiliary bishop. And is there another name that you've heard mentioned several times in just about every presentation? 
about pedagogy of the oppressed. Well, that would be Paulo Ferreri as well, who basically created a systematic form of Marxism in terms of how it could be blended into education. But it's almost a catechesis. Isn't it weird that they both were from Recife, Brazil, and they both ended up in Geneva somehow for a while in the early 70s together, and one was involved in completely transforming education, and the other one was working with the World Council of Churches as well. Actually, they both were to some extent, completely transforming both churches and education. Now, why would that be something that you should pay attention to? Because remember that in church and in faith, that is religious education. You're being told how you should see the world, how you should see yourself, especially in your position with the Lord himself. What lenses you should have to interpret the world by. So if you have both the church and education at the same time, going in the same direction, well, what you end up having is you have collusion. But what brought them together? And Dunhelda Kamara, as we're seeing here, had a tremendous impact on a young man in the early 1970s. A man who would soon be gathering both world leaders and corporate leaders, so public-private leaders, to disrupt and dismantle the world to reset civilization. And here is that man. Sound up. Here we go. Make sure my sound's up. Hold on one second. All right, here we go. I, I give you one example which for me was probably a crucial moment in my life. I traveled for the first time uh, to Brazil. I met a priest uh, who was known at that time as the priest of the poor people. Hmm. Uh, his name was Don Elder Camara. And he brought me to the favelas of uh, Recife and I was so shocked. And I said, I have to invite this bishop to Davos mm. to tell the people what poverty is. So I invited him to, to, to the annual meeting in Davos, but suddenly I came back in Switzerland, I found out that actually he was forbidden at that time Ooh. to speak in Switzerland because he was considered to be a communist. And I said, this is for me a test. But then I noticed that many companies told me, if you invite this person who is so much against business, we will not come to Davos anymore. And that's where I had to stand to my values. Yeah. Even at the risk that I would have to give up uh, the World Economic Forum. Wow. Um, but it went very well. Uh, I have to say, um, the audience in Davos listened to him. So, Dom Helder Kamara, the Red Bishop, had the most influence on a man by the name of Klaus Schwab, the founder and leader of the World Economic Forum. If you see the chain of influence of how this has worked, 
He had influence on another man, Paulo Ferreri, who influenced all of education. He had influence on another man who would become Pope Francis. Do you see how this goes? So Klaus Schwab would say this, values cannot be justified by the intellectual process alone. Faith must be involved. And this is where I would say to a lot of good friends that I think are trying to kind of take a snapshot of what's happening today in society because they need to know how to beat it too. And what they're doing is they're taking a look at things and they're saying, well, it's those of us in the spiritual world and faith against the secular world. It's like, no, you're up against a religious battle. That's what this is. And what it is, is a corrupt simulacrum of the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, this thing's a parasite. It doesn't just need to be a simulacrum of the Christian faith or the Roman Catholic faith. It can be a simulacrum of the Mormon faith. It can be a simulacrum of the Muslim faith, of Islam. It could be a simulacrum of Buddhism. In many ways, it's kind of like Baha'i anyway, but it could be the same thing there too. And if you wonder why so many in the Jewish faith have gone so progressive, well, it's there too. So what you end up having is you end up having kind of an ecumenical coming together of the faiths. Because no longer are they going to argue about or debate their core doctrines that they have. How to be right with God and with man. How we should live our lives. Spiritually, what are the things that we should care for? The disciplines that we should have in our life. No, all those differences need to disappear. Because we need to be concerned more or less about social justice. That's your new direction. And not just for the evangelical church, but for every faith. And so if every faith is concerned with having the same new doctrines that are all basically infused with Gnosticism and Hermeticism, if that becomes the new doctrine for every faith, then anyone outside of that new faith that all of the faiths agree upon, well, they're a radical. Well, they're somebody that should not be listened to. The thing is, as I said before, I've been involved with debate for about 25 years. I mean, I've spent a lot of money, and my, my wife and I have, on putting on debates. We had thousands of people attending. And one of the things that we wanted to do is just put the two best representatives of each of the faith claims, and let's go at it in a scholastic fashion. Let's just see where our differences are, and let's make sure that we're very clear about that. And try to convince the other person that, well, I'm correct, and no, no, you're not correct, this is why I am. What's your proof for that? That's the kind of thing we used to do. That's done now. We're done with that. Now it's, you are either part of this new way of looking at faith overall, or you're out. You're a denier. Almost like, you need to accept the science you need to accept the science about climate, or you're a climate denier, right? You need to accept the, accept the news about what's happening with your vaccinations, 
or you're a vaccination denier. You need to accept the truth about what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. Don't ask any questions, nothing probing, or else you're a denier of the Holocaust that's happening, right? It's like, no, I really want to know. I want to know what's happening. I want to know what bad is happening with Putin. But I also want to know what's going on with Ukraine, too. But you're not allowed to ask those questions. Now, if you start to ask questions, what will happen, or if you start to say, no, I'm going to dissent from this, Let's actually have some, let's have some dialogue over these things. Well, then what they're going to tell you is that, well, you are part of this conspiracy theory group over here. It's like, no, no, see, <laughs> you don't get this. I'm not into conspiracy theories. I didn't arrive at the things that I've arrived at because I was looking at websites that have black backgrounds and, you know, that kind of thing. No, I, I was in the rooms when all this stuff was being discussed. That's the difference between me and just about everybody else that's talking about these things. There are a few people, like Ed Dowd would be one, who's like, yeah, well, I was a higher up in BlackRock, and here's what they're doing. That, to some extent, was us. And that's how we know some of the things we know. So I'm not out here to make false accusations or try to, to paint somebody in the wrong way. I know what they're doing. And I also know the next step after woke. And it's not what you think it is. But what Klaus Schwab is saying is that faith has to be involved. What he means is that faith can't oppose what we're going to do. Faith has to be one of the engines to make sure that we continue with the process that we're on in terms of the revolution. And the clock is ticking. We have to stay on time. That's what you want to do, by the way, if you ever want to get anything done. I don't know if you folks that are very, very productive people know that. If you really want to get something do, done, put a deadline on it, right? If you own a company or a business or whatever, and you have folks that are working, you say, okay, guys, Friday, 5 p.m., this must be done, okay? Or else we're going to have a problem. It's got to be done, and this has to be out on Monday. But that needs to be the finished piece. And if it's not done by Friday at 5 p.m., it's like, well, we're not going to have a good weekend, are we? Because you're going to need to get this done. So much like that, those that understand that principle are putting dates on things like 2030. That's why you're seeing we need to be net zero carbon neutral by 2030. That's why we're saying we need to have zero car deaths by 2030. That's why for us in the travel industry, we need to have net zero events by 2030. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means for, the, for those of us in the event and tour and travel industry that people that live more than 50 to 30 miles away can't come. It needs to be virtual. Same with your speakers. It also means that we need to have diversity in everything. So if you have a panel of people who are speaking, it needs to be multi-ethnic, multi-gender and also representing all sorts of different kinds of perspectives. Oh, that's not what they mean by that, though. What they mean is you can't have the traditional perspective. You can't have the objective perspective. You must have the perspective of the revolution. Because 2030 is not about net zero. It's about year zero. We said that the other day. But faith must be involved because faith can't resist this. You can't have... 100 million people in the United States pushing back on this that are Christians. You can't have 
20 million people that are Muslims pushing back on this, that are Muslim. Do you see what's going on here? If you went to Afghanistan before the United States pulled out, there was a poster that you would see in Afghanistan, particularly in Kabul. Do you know what it was? It was the 17 sustainability goals of the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. Because that's what they were about, is societal change. And that's where they were pointing Islam as well. So faith must be involved. So this is a wheel that you probably want to take a picture of. We'd seen the wheel the other day of the Great Reset. This is the role of religion. And what you will see at the top of the roll is you will see the future of economic progress, climate change, LGBTI inclusion, digital economy and the new value creation, systemic racism. In other words, how you're dealing with things like and using critical race theory, involving being able to break down what were our previous systems and introducing new systems. You see peace and resilience, global governance, corruption, international security, arts and culture, inclusive design, global health, justice and law, gender inequality. But this is the role of religion. Religion will be the thing that helps to carve out the E in environmentalism the S in social change and order, and then as well encourage you in a Romans 13 way, the, govern the governance side of ESG. That's one of religion's new roles in the Great Reset. Now we played this last time, I cut it off early when we were here in June. I'm going to go ahead and play the whole thing. I'm a little ahead of schedule here, so we're in good shape. This is from a 2008 panel on the role of religion. You have former Prime Minister Tony Blair. You have, as well, a Catholic cardinal. You have a Muslim imam. You have a representative from the Baha'i faith. You have a Jewish rabbi. And then representing evangelical Christianity, the man that they all got out of the way for to let him speak of the Southern Baptist Convention, Rick Warham. My faith in the modern world as well, because I think this is in a, in a sense quite an important thing, because there'll be a lot of people who would say, uh, yeah, okay, we agree with all these values, but why faith? Is that a softball question or what? <laughs> I know that you can handle anything, so I'll give you that. First, I applaud Davos for having this session. And I applaud you for coming to it. It really says more about you than it does about us. Stop. If you are a global business leader, you need to understand. By the way, I'm going to go back here. Um, listen to when, when he says, you can't do this without us and goes into the third leg of the stool. Okay? My faith Sorry in the modern world that. as well. I, think I know that you can. It really says more about you than it does about us. If you are a global business leader, you need to understand that the future of the world is not secularism. It is religious 
pluralism. You may not like that, but you're going to have to deal with it. The world is becoming more religious, not less. The myth that as education rises, religion would go down, is that literally a myth? And if you happen to be in a country where either houses of worship are not strong, you have no idea of the vitality of faith around the world and see how influential it really is. There are major problems on our planet. I call them the global giants. They affect not millions of people, but billions of people. Pandemic diseases, extreme poverty, illiteracy, corruption, global warming, spiritual emptiness. We cannot solve these problems without involving people of faith and their religious institutions. It isn't going to happen any other way. Mm-hmm. On this planet, there are about 20 million Jews. There are about 600 million Buddhists. There are about 800 million Hindus. There are over 1 billion Muslims. And there are 2.3 billion Christians. If you take people of faith out of the equation, you've ruled out five-sixths of the world. And if we only leave it up to secular people to solve these major problems, it isn't going to happen. Now, I've been coming to Davos for some time, and we always talk about partnerships. And I'm in favor of partnerships. But we've been missing the third leg of the stool. Third leg of the stool. When we talk about partnerships at Davos, we basically talk about public and private, or public being government and non-government organizations, and private meaning the for-profit organizations. A one-legged stool will fall over, and a two-legged stool will fall over. You have to have three legs. And the third leg of the stool are the people representing faiths on this stage and others. It is the faith component. Government has a role that only government can do. Profit has a role that only profit can do. And churches and mosques and synagogues and temples have a role that only they can do. There's some things that churches have. Let me just take my own faith as a a Christian pastor. Let me give you some things that government or business will never have that the church has. Uh, Number one, we have universal distribution. I could take you to 10 million villages around the world and the only thing in it is a church. They don't have a school, they don't have a business, they don't have a church, I mean a program, they don't have a fire department, they don't have any government, but they got a church. The church was global 200 years before Davos even started talking about globalization. It is truly the only global organization. It speaks more languages than the United Nations. It's in a thousand more people groups than the UN. It is the only truly global organization. So we have universal distribution, and we have used this in disaster relief very effectively. I lead a very small network of about 500,000 churches in 162 countries. That's one little network compared to the Catholic Church, which if you go to uh, Africa, 30% of the health care done on that continent is done by the Catholic Church. You can't ignore that. You, can't, you take the Catholic Church out of Africa, you've just lost the number one provider of, of health care on that, on that continent. Uh, so we have universal distribution. The second thing we have is we have the largest pool of manpower. Not accounting all of uh, brothers and sisters who are Jews and Muslims and, and uh, other faiths, Hindus, Buddhists, 
if I could just get one half of Christianity involved in these major conflicts, that'd be a billion people. Hundreds of millions of people serve through their congregation every week at no cost. No government and no business will ever match the commitment of volunteers to faith. None. Ever. Committed. You need to understand that as a business leader. The third thing that we have is we have local credibility. Last year I did a world tour where I was, did 46,000 miles in 45 days. And in every country, I literally went around the world, in every country I met with the government leaders, usually the president, the prime minister, the top business leaders, and the religious leaders. And in every one of those countries, what I found is when you get down to the local city level, the credibility lies with the imam, the pastor, the priest, the rabbi. Why? Because that person is marrying, bearing, they're there in the seasons of life, they care for the sick, they help the people. When the wars come, everybody else leaves, all the NGOs pull out, but the church and the mosque stays. Why? It is the community. You can't talk community development without talking about churches and mosques and temples and synagogues. You just can't talk about it because they are the community. So my challenge uh, to you is, can we not all get along? <laughs> can we not just work together? I don't have to share your motivation, and you don't have to share mine for us to work on things like poverty, disease, and illiteracy and things like that. Frankly, I don't care why you do good, as long as you do good. Now, there are some people who do good for a political reason. I happen to be on the Council of Foreign Relations in America, and we've learned that when you help people with health care in a country, they tend to like your country. You help people get well, they like you. Now, that's not my motivation, but it's a good motivation. I don't have a problem with political motivation, helping people get well, and they like your country, fine. Uh, you may have a profit motivation. You may be a pharmaceutical and say, we're going to make drugs, and we're going to do good and make money at the same time. Great. I wish more companies would do that. I wish they'd make profit and do good at the same time. It's not my motive, but uh, it's not a bad motive. You may have a personal motivation. Say, well, I had cancer, so I care about people who have cancer. Or I have AIDS, or I care about people who have AIDS. Um, you may, that's fine. Personal mo my motivation is I have a Savior named Jesus Christ who said, love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't have to be your motivation. It has to be mine. But can we not work together uh, in building the three legs of the stool? For the last three years, I've been working on a prototype of this. It's called the Peace Plan, P-E-A-C-E. -E. Promote reconciliation, equip ethical leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. In my, my own church, I've tomorrow. had over 7,700 of my members overseas in 68 countries doing this Peace Plan. We learned a thousand ways that don't work, but we learned a few dozen that do. And we are learning how to work with businesses and how to work with governments and how to work with churches and mosques. I'll end with this story. Uh, in last December, I was asked by President Bush to be the closing speaker at the Global Summit on Malaria. And I said, I want to just show you why we cannot eliminate malaria, much less any other problem, without houses of worship. Let me just show you one example. So I said, I'll show you three slides. And I put up the first PowerPoint slide, and it was a slide of Western Rwanda. I said, there are 700,000 people in this province. Here are the three hospitals, and I pointed them out on the map. 
Only three hospitals for 700,000 people. It's a two days walk to any hospital. That means if you get sick, you've got to walk over mountains for two days. Two of those hospitals are faith-based, and one of them is secular. Now, I want you to notice a few things. What did you take away from that? First of all, he's saying, those of you here at Davos in the World Economic Forum, those of you that are here that are the governments, those of you that have been young global leaders, people like Emmanuel Macron, people like that are there that were like Boris Johnson, like folks that are currently in our Democratic Party and so forth, and some Republicans too, that are rhinos. So all the government folks are there that are going to help to make this transition into the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And over here on the other side, he has the corporate leaders, the CEOs, the folks that are the head of the oil and gas companies, and that are the head of entertainment and distribution, those that are the head of automobile manufacturers, travel industry, food. But did you notice he's focusing on one particular industry over and over again? What was it that you heard over and over again that he was really concerned about? The pharmaceutical industry. Isn't that interesting? It's back in 2008. Well, we'll get back to that. So, this is the role of faith in systemic global challenges. This was released in 2015 and 2016. It was something that I had heard quite a bit about. And a lot of the concepts that you see that are articulated in this white paper that was delivered are concepts that were a long time already in implementation. So it isn't like this was new to many people, but as all of a sudden, especially beginning in 2016, as the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and all of their partners, meaning every corporation, every faith-based organization, every anybody, was bringing more people into what would be a transition into the Fourth Industrial Revolution, they needed to make sure that they had everybody on board that they could. There couldn't be a rogue denomination out there that wasn't on board with this. It's not like you could leave like, you know, with like a million some odd people that are in the PCA, or maybe it's less than that, while you just had the 20 million that are in the SBC, or 17 million or whatever it is. You couldn't just have the Roman Catholic Church. You had to have everybody, because if you had a denomination that stood up against this and said, no, we're not doing this, then you'd have a problem. Well, there, there were some that, some that did say no. But they're not the ones that are your heroes, I hate to tell you. They also knew, knew who not to approach that were within these denominations, because if you approach them, they might start waving the red flag or the white flag and saying, there's a problem here. You guys got to stop this. So you had to be careful about who you spoke to. You had to leverage them. I was a part of some of those meetings. Part of the white paper was this, the faith factor in employment skills and Human Capital. It's written by Neil Nielsen, Chairmo of Lippo Education Initiatives, Lippo Group Indonesia. Lippo Group Indonesia is the company that is part of the Riyadi family, Mokhtar, James, and Stephen Riyadi. I've known Stephen Riyadi. I think he's a very nice man. And I would say that if you were to do business with anybody, the Riyadis are people that You'd probably want to do business with them. They, they are fair business people. 
but unfortunately, they are involved with this. As a matter of fact, James Riotti, not Stephen, taking the lead in this in terms of faith. Stephen Riotti is part of a group that's basically called, well, Living Stream Ministries, LSM. Okay, which is kind of a neo-Orthodox different group that followed the teachings of Witness Lee. James Riotti, though, calls himself a Reformed Christian. So he believes that he is Reformed. And his money has gone to Reformed causes, especially in the United States. Now, James Riotti is a prominent donor to Reformed Evangelical Ministries, you know, like, let's say, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, Third Millennium Millennium Ministries, and many others. He's active in bringing the Reformed faith into Asia through Pastor Stephen Tong. So when you see Stephen Tong pop up places, or you see that pastors are going to Stephen Tong's church, his massive church that was built in Asia, well, that's James Riotti's money. He's leader and prominent architect of the role of religion at the World Economic Forum. This is James Riotti at a breakout session at Davos. And they do the same thing. Some of you, those of you that are involved in continuing education or corporate groups, whatever it may be, you might do your breakouts, right? And over the past five years or so, six years, they do all these things. They all sit in circles in little chairs around a, a marker board and, you know, dumb little stuff like that. And you thought, well, it's just for us corporate folks. This is stupid, but we'll put up with it. No, they do it when you have world leaders too. Because it breaks down then this feeling of authority. You see what I'm saying? You don't have the classroom-style tables or the, you know, the U-shaped tables with the, the higher-end people with their name tags. You break down that authority. So then all of a sudden, you have guys that are billionaires talking to people that are part of the activist movement. And they're getting that connection together, right? That feeling of affinity and group. So this was the group there. And if you take a look up there, it says Faith Solutions. Faith solutions for what? Well, as he's drawing out the faith, you know, you've seen this stuff in your corporate gatherings before. They do the same thing at the World Economic Forum. Faith solutions. Well, look at the question. How can the public and private sector establish new ways of collaboration with faith communities in a digitally enabled future? Remember what I said the other day, we're moving from an analog world to a digital world. So it's faith that's going to create that collaboration. And if you take a look at the humanitarian response, it's with Bani Dougal, who is a UN representative from the Baha'i International Community, and Yannick Heinegger, who is the Global Shaper Geneva Hub. That's who Mr. Yadi was working with. And that was the question that they were talking about with corporate leaders and government leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos. So this is integralism. Remember, we talked about integralismo before. And integralism, integralism is this, an interpretation of Catholic social teaching that argues for an authoritarian and anti-pluralist Catholic state. Wherever the preponderance of Catholicism within the, the society makes this possible. Now, Mind you, this is also something that's done within the Protestant faith. The dominant faith or practice becomes the third leg of the stool, integrated between the authoritarian structure of the state corporate fascist structure. So you have the corporate side 
the state side, public-private, and the faith third leg of that stool, which makes it integralism. Do you understand? So when you start to think of this, you say integralism. Now just take out Catholic social, social teaching and put in Protestant social teaching. And then you will see actually on the Wikipedia page that they're mentioning that Brad Littlejohn is talking about this, who happens to write for Davenant Institute and as well with a group called American Reformer. What you would know otherwise as being Christian nationalism. Red flags. We need to have some conversations. And I know some good people that are kind of getting involved with this. Just like I knew some good people that were getting pulled in by the World Economic Forum and Council on Foreign Relations and then all sorts of Asian billionaires back in 2009, 2010, 2011, 12. Good people, good ministries. They got pulled in. Remember problem, reaction, solution? So you want to start with the problem, CRT, drag queen story hour, all these awful things that are happening. You create the reaction, neo-reaction, integralism. What we need to do is take over all of society, get rid of the First Amendment. And we need to have a religious state with a new magisterium for the United States that governs all faith activity and belief. You really want that? Well, that whole idea of liberty is passe and so forth now. Oh, my goodness. By the way, we need to get rid of the 19th Amendment, too. Yeah, women shouldn't be able to vote. You're creating something that will fail. You're also creating the enemy that the left says that we are that we aren't. And yet, because you're so upset about these other things, you're going to say, yeah, that's what we should do. Even though there's only about maybe... 100,000 of you on Twitter that will actually follow that kind of craziness. That's what's going on. Then you have all sorts of people that have crusader motifs in all of their Twitter handles that start going in and saying bold things and usually anti-Semitic things. And then all of a sudden, anti-Semitism seems like it's kind of the norm now with right-side groups. And you get pulled into some of those. And if you dare say anything against it, oh, where are your solutions? You need to follow us. Oh, what? I mean, I'm sorry. Where's Ray Epps in all this? Oh, it's Andrew Torba, the CEO of Gab. CEO of Gab basically making crazy anti-Semitic statements and so forth. Talking about Christian nationalism. Attacking me on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Integralism. Stay away from it. Promotes the third leg of the stool. Leg one, public sector role. Leg two, private sector role. Leg three, a faith sector role. Take a picture. We're going to move on. So this again is from that white paper from the World Economic Forum. And it says, where the role of faith is part of the global challenges, the solution, the problem, and the perspective. Now, you might be looking at this and going, hmm, that looks a little familiar about the things we've been talking about over the last couple days. Solution, problem, perspective. It's kind of out of order. 
and they do that, of course, purposely so it doesn't jump out at the average person. But maybe you've heard it. And I'm going to change the last word, perspective, on the next slide. I'm going to go ahead and just change that for you so you can understand what's going on. Problem, reaction, solution. That's what's going on. And how can we use faith, that third leg of the stool, to create the solution that we want? Remember what we've been saying? They already know what the solution is that they want to arrive at, so they create the problem, they manage the reaction to get the solution that they want. The problem is not the end. The solution that they want is ESG, a social credit system, they want a global oligarchical technocracy with a few people making the decisions, not a republic and a form of democracy. They want to get rid of that. They want to tell you what needs to be done because we're going to have the people that are the experts that are in charge. So let's just use this as an example. Problem, reaction, solution. Let's look at that first problem up there. It says... Violent resistance against certain policies, such as birth control, so they won't just, spill out, just spell it out and call it abortion. And they don't mind mentioning that they're also kind of referring to euthanasia, too, which is the thing that happens, you know, when, if you're in Canada and, you know, you can't make it up the stairs and your chairlift is broken, and they say, hey, is it okay if we do some euthanasia? But, so birth control, and what else? Vaccinations. Remember what Rick Warren's thing was over and over and over again? So you have that problem, and the reactions to those problems, of course, is views on sexual reproduction and human rights, women's rights, views on the human body, the concept of sin, guilt, and forgiveness. Because when you're talking about birth control, you know, if someone has to have an abortion, we've got to get rid of that whole sin-guilt thing, because we need to control the population in the future. The state needs to be in charge of who gets a kid and who doesn't. So the solution, of course, is providers of health care, charitable trusts, emergency response to things like this. Back then it was Ebola. We know what they were talking about later on. Holistic concepts of health, healing, promoting healthy lifestyles, attention to existential health. Religious communities engaged in aid work, prevention, education, and advocacy. So when it's time to lock everything down, your pastor is basically nudged and pressured into saying, you must stay home, you must do what's necessary for the common good. And when it comes time to take the vaccine, they need to say, well, it's time to do this. This is what you're doing for the common good. Don't listen to all those conspiracy theories. Do what we are telling you to do. Well, who would be saying things like that? Who kind of took the lead in a lot of that sort of thing? Let me say a personal word about uh, Dr. Francis Collins. Uh, we have been friends, he and I have been friends for many, many years. I think we first met years ago when we were both speaking at the Davos World Economic Forum. I'm here at Davos with a lot of my friends, and we're talking about what are the biggest problems on the planet and how are we going to solve them. Extreme poverty, 
pandemic diseases, there's a role for uh, the public sector, there's a role for the private sector, and there's a role for the faith sector. Each of them can do something that none of the other three can do. Government has a role to set agenda. Government has a role to set priorities and things like that and, and move nations. But then also, houses of worship have things that uh, businesses and government will never have. In the first place, we have universal distribution. Uh, the church was uh, global 200 years before Davos ever talk about globalization. So we have to mobilize these faith groups to work together on these issues that, that have been unsolvable. The church has, of course, the greatest distribution. We also have the biggest manpower. We have hundreds of millions of people who volunteer around the world in villages and cities uh, on a weekly basis, and we don't have to pay them. The third thing that they have is they have local credibility. Uh, at the local level, people trust that priest or that pastor, or for that matter, an imam or a rabbi, uh, the religious leader of their faith, uh, because he's marrying, he's burying, he's helping them through the state. So basically the same things that you heard him say before. This is what Rick Warren does. Is What happens is that, as opposed to the church saying, hold on a second, there's something that's not right that's going on right now. Ladies and gentlemen that are in my congregation, we need to resist what's happening. No, no, no. If you have the top people in your denomination, if you have the presidents of all the seminaries, if you have every major parachurch organization across the United States saying, no, we need to do this and you can't be selfish, we're all in this together. Romans 13. And everybody starts to obey it. Maybe there'll be one pastor here or there that's maybe not part of your denomination that might say, oh, I know this is wrong. We're not doing this. Oh, they will get vilified. And the other pastors in their area will condemn them for doing that. Until about seven months later, everybody figures out, oh, this is destroying our country. This is destroying our faith. And we all wake up. But the damage was done. As a matter of fact, they even fooled the President of the United States. Let me, I think I said this before. What day was it that Julius Caesar was killed? The Ides of March. What day was it that Tsar Nicholas II was deposed and Vladimir Lenin basically achieved the revolution in Russia? The Ides of March. What day was it that we announced that President Trump got in front of everybody with Mike Pence, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Birx, Jerome Adams behind him and said, we're going to shut down the nation based upon the recommendations of the Coronavirus Task Force? The Ides of March. They like dates. It's almost a religious experience. Well, it happened in churches as well. This is from a Presbyterian church in America, the most conservative. OPC would be more conservative. PCA, very conservative faith, you know, for the most part. I mean, Tim Keller's there, postmodernist. Um, but you also, of course, had other people, you know, Legan Duncan, PCA churches, RTS mainly. But this is from a PCA church. Are you ready for this morning's opening metaphor? This is Prof. Koch is up here, so we're going to get a metaphor this morning. It takes a minute. Bear with me. Uh, I was thinking about it this morning. We're so happy to be here and unmasked, all we with unveiled faces, right, and, and uh, to be together. And we were watching the uh, Delta variant and all that stuff and worrying a little bit about whether we're going to be able to keep um, this 
freedom to meet together this week. Um, and we're here together and able to be together because of a vaccine, largely, right, that we've been vaccinated. And, uh, and that is our protection, our assurance. So here's the metaphor. We, we actually are here longing for something much more than just getting back to life the way that we remember it, being able to go on vacation, as some of our members have done, or go to a restaurant. And, and we have a, a much bigger problem, don't we, than the COVID coronavirus. Um, our problem is, how can we come into the presence of the God who made us, who we have sinned against, who we've disappointed? And if you look at the bulletin verse, uh, you see the metaphor for the vaccine. We have a much better solution that allows us to be together, and that is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So as you look to your right and to your left and you see the person sitting next to you, we hope that that person is vaccinated. But we also hope that they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them as we have the hope that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And by that Spirit, his love is perfected with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment to draw nigh. And that's what we've come to do. So you start to make analogies between the Holy Spirit and the vaccine. That is the thing that is here to protect us and allow us to come together. It is the vaccine. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, you come and receive the vaccine. It's the same thing that we heard Governor Hochul do from New York. A very religious kind of way of representing the vaccine as the thing that would bring you into the new covenant community and allow you to live freely in the world. And those of you that do not take the vaccine, that are not indwelt with the Pfizer vaccine, that you cannot experience that new life, that transformational life. You are locked away in sin and darkness. They're playing everybody, folks. So the same thing. Well, let's again look at something else. Okay? It's the same strategy. The way that they're doing things. So, here's how they did things. They also looked at wealth. I'm sorry, let me go back one here. So, they're talking about, as well, look at the second section below. The problem is supporting status quo and unjust financial systems. Romanticizing poverty. So the reaction to this needs to be critical or negative view of possessions, the wealth of faith groups. So the solution is nurturing communities of trust, having equity, critique of inequities. So if there's inequalities among us, we need to make it equal. And maybe it's the right of the government to try to make sure that we're equal. An ethical codex and stewardship. Once again, problem, reaction, solution. So this was one of their answers, and this was actually on that same paper that we've been referring to. Pope Francis quoted, once again, a disciple of Dumhelder Kamara, I ask you to ensure that humanity is served not by wealth, by wealth and not ruled by, by it. Sorry, let me say again. I ask you to ensure that humanity is served by wealth and not ruled by it. Because the World Economic Forum's role of faith is very concerned about something. And let's go ahead and read the paragraph together. Christian leaders in focusing on social justice... Many others champion inclusive growth, including sojourners Jim Wallace. If you know who that is, Jim Wallace is the social justice progressive proclaiming Protestant evangelical. Uh, I have a hard time 
calling him an evangelical because he brings no good news. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, while grassroots action also plays a key role. A second Christian approach, more typical of Protestant churches, places the emphasis on personal responsibility for wealth, prosperity, enterprise, and growth. Long ago, the sociologist Max Weber noticed the connection between Protestantism and a work ethic which was central to capitalism. Today, that lives on in new guises, ranging from an emphasis on hard work, self-reliance, and strong families to the prosperity gospel, particularly found, uh, associated with Pentecostal Christianity, but also found in other religions. This asserts that if you have the right faith and proper religious practice, you will get rich, a theology which has some vocal critics within and outside Christianity. So the World Economic Forum's Role of Faith project is concerned with the prosperity gospel that is popular in many Pentecostal churches, not because the World Economic Forum is concerned about the theological purity of what they're saying, but because the World Economic Forum is introducing equity-based socialism, like through the Gospel Coalition, like through Tim Keller, as the new world's economic model. Now, look, you, you and I both might have some disagreements with the theological constructs of others. You might have a lot of agree disagreements with Pentecostal theology. But that's not the reason why the World Economic Forum has a disagreement with it. The reason they have a disagreement with those that are Pentecostal is because they don't want anybody to prosper. It doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian or Baptist, they just don't want you to have prosperity. The new moral code is socialism, is equity, is Marxism. That's the new moral code of your faith. So what they will do is they will promote others within the evangelical community to attack prosperity gospel teachers. Now, if you, if you disagree with them, that's okay. Let's have that debate. Let's go after them and so forth. But the reason that they're doing this, and I knew this 12 years ago, and one of the reasons they reached out to a ministry that I was a part of is because of this. We can help you a little more financially if you attack them. Use hyperbole. Do whatever you got to do. We got to get rid of them, especially because their influence is in other continents. That doesn't mean that the prosperity gospel is right because they're being attacked. But it does mean that that's the reason that the World Economic Forum is doing it. So once again, solution, problem, reaction. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, traditional con and conservatism. Patriarchal slow-changing structures. Freedom of religion can improve the conditions for women. So progressive communities is what we need. We need important, really, female role models, strong, enabling networks for change. We need to focus on women and children in local and international social work, work with gender roles and gender justice. So what are they talking about when they say gender justice? They're saying that women have been opposed and oppressed in a patriarchal biblical system, and we need to change the way that we see those things. We need more women in leadership. So we need to deconstruct the hierarchies that we have right now within evangelical Christianity. Those of you that go, well, that's, you know, that's not what the Bible says about the way we need to have leadership. Oh, dismantle that completely. You need to tear down 
those old systems of hierarchies. So that's the second part of it. So if you have them, first of all, attacking, and it's okay. Again, you can have disagreements with those that, that have different theological positions that you think are wrong. That's fine. But the World Economic Forum is going after prosperity, and they're also going against patriarchal systems. So you have certain leaders within evangelical Christianity, and you help support them to start tearing down evangelical Christian biblical means of hierarchy, like this. This is from J.D. Greer. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention served three terms because of COVID, and he says this to Beth Moore. Thank you, Beth. Hoping that we are entering a new era where we in the complementarian world take all the word of God seriously, not just the parts about distinction and roles, but also the tearing down of all hierarchy and his gracious, gracious distributions of gifts to all of his children. So what J.D. is doing in talking to Beth Moore is saying yes, and actually one of the things they were beginning to push for is that Beth Moore should be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. They started making excuses saying, well, you know, it says it's about a pastor and a pastoral, but it says nothing about the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. This was the track they were taking. I need to think about some people that were saying a lot of good things about Beth Moore the last few years. The World Economic Forum's role of the Role of Faith project is very concerned with transforming current societal hierarchies and will use faith leaders who are willing to prostitute themselves, ignore the clear teaching of Scripture, and create a cultural revolution in the church. So remember, Dom Helder was in favor of whose cultural revolution? Mao Zedong. And Mao Zedong opposed the forals, the old faiths, the old cultures, the old way of doing things. We need to replace them with something new. And what you have been going through in the evangelical church, in the Roman Catholic church, also within Islam, people hate it when I expand that. Oh, well, Mike, just really need to be concerned about No, you need to see it for what this is. They're asking every community to prostitute themselves to the will of the World Economic Forum. And this has to stop, and it needs to stop now. I'm so glad you have the pastor you have at this church. <laughs> because what, what he just said is, he, is it so, and this is what so many ministries and churches do, they do a cost-benefit analysis. Okay, what's it going to cost me if I take a stand with, you know, O'Fallon and some of these other guys against some of this stuff? What are the benefits if I stay quiet? If I don't get involved with all this, how about if I attack them? What are the benefits? What can I get out of it? See, I don't believe John Benzinger is going to do that. And one of the reasons that I stand with other men that you've heard in the last day and a half is because I know these other men will stand strong as well, no matter what the cost, because somebody has to. Even some people you've never heard of before, like vocal distance, you'll hear later on, that's Mike Young. And you're about ready to hear somebody else who will be coming up in five minutes here. And uh, I met him recently in California 
at a conference. He's going to talk about something that you need to hear. Because all of this is leading someplace, and it's leading someplace quickly, and I mean fast. Because the Fourth Industrial Revolution is not just about transforming us into using electric cars. It's not just about transforming us into socialism. It's not just about transitioning the church into some sort of Gnostic, hermetic, dialectical mess. It's also about transforming you. That's what transhumanism is. And in just a moment, you will hear that. Thank you very much. We'll see you again in five minutes.